Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. It's the Media Project, a half hour of commentary and analysis, and on our best days, some insight into the news media issues of recent days, and there are so many of them that we have a lot to talk about. I'm Rex Smith, the editor-at-large at the Times Union, and I'm here with three wonderful colleagues. Dr. Alan Shartok, the CEO of Northeast Public Radio, a columnist, commentator, political scientist, and our host, Dr. Shartok. I'm so glad I was included in, in the wonderful people category. I know the other two are, but I was, I've never been quite sure about your feelings about this, Rex. But thank you for including me. Oh, my. After a quarter century. Uh, yes, I think it has. I think I've been doing the show for almost as long as I've been married. We have Rosemary Armeo, investigative journalist, reporter, editor, and professor. You're a wonderful person, too. How are you? Thank you. <laughs> I'm not going to argue with any of that. All good. And we have Judy Patrick, Vice President of the New York Press Association, longtime editor of the Daily Gazette in Schenectady. Judy, I'm so glad to uh, talk to you today. I am here and ready to rumble with y'all. Let's go. Ready to rumble, absolutely. Well, there's a lot to rumble about. I mean, just think about what journalists are covering these days. We have the most powerful hurricane ever to make landfall in Louisiana wildfires throughout California, including the most potent winds ever to hit Los Angeles, 164-mile-an-hour winds. We have a pandemic assaulting us, violence in the streets, and an ongoing national confrontation with racism. We have, oh, yes, the Republican National Convention and a presidential campaign bearing down on us and all sorts of issues related to that, an assault on the post office and so much more that makes it very difficult to think about what takes priority. And you kind of wonder, how do you sort through all of that? And how do you kind of make the prioritization of the issues that need to be confronted? Alan, as a person who deals with politics, which you often remind us is the authoritative allocation of scarce resources, so time and space are the scarce resource of journalism, how do you decide what's important, what needs to be covered? Well, I don't decide, and frankly, you know, you and your role has always have been a decider. The thing that strikes me is it's decided for me. So when I got up after the Republican convention, I tried to watch, because I got to bed at 7 in the evening, and I like to do my watching in the morning. So when I got up, I couldn't Mm -hmm. find the Republican convention at all, Rex. I had to watch all about the hurricane. So some news editor somewhere decided it's going to be all hurricanes all morning long, and maybe we'll mention that Mike Pence gave a speech last night uh, in defense of the president. But that allocation is already done for me. Hmm. And tough decisions then have to be made. I mean, Judy, you made a lot of these decisions as an editor uh, about what story takes precedence on the front page. When you have so much confronting you, how do you choose? Well, it seems like it's tougher than it really is, but actually, once you start making these decisions, it's not tough at all. Uh, You have to decide what goes on A1, but there's usually plenty of room inside. And now in the digital age, there's plenty of room to put all the stories you want to present your readers online. The issue is getting the manpower to cover it. You know, I I disagree with Alan about the hurricane. In fact, at this point, the hurricane was far more newsworthy than a Republican convention. This hurricane with the capacity, you know, to kill thousands of people 
versus a, a boring, unpaid political commercial. It seemed like that was an obvious choice. I have come to the conclusion now that maybe we shouldn't be covering these gavel-to-gavel conventions like we are because we're essentially turning the airtime over to political parties for them to run free ads for four nights in a row. It's worth probably billions of dollars, well, probably millions. I, I want the right of response to Judy's onslaught, her attack on my character and personality. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> it's only her. It's only your point of view that she thinks is crazy, Alan, not your character. Well, maybe that too. I don't know. Oh, yeah, maybe that too. I don't disagree with you, Judy. Frankly, I would have put the hurricane on the front page too. And on the electronic media, I certainly would have done that. But what I'm always interested in is the intellectual defense of what you do. So here we have a president, Trump, allegedly a president who has his finger on the button, who has put this country at great risk and who is probably the most important single individual in the world right now in terms of the power that he holds. So when it comes to whether or not this guy, who many people think is just awful, gets reelected and what their presentation of fact is and whether they're lying as usual, I think one could make an argument, one could make an argument, although I do agree with you, that the convention ought to be given its proper space. Let me bring in Rosemary to this, because I think there's an interesting question here about how journalism keeps its eye on systemic issues when you have breaking news and how you make those decisions. Because, Rosemary, you spent a lot of your career doing big work, investigative projects, stuff that tries to point to systemic issues. And that is hard to keep your eye on when you've got the world caving in around you, let's say, right? Especially at a time, as Judy points out, where there's a lack of reporters to go after all the stories. That is the real big problem, collecting the information. And as you were all talking, I realized that they're all connected. All those stories are connected. The hurricanes and the growing strength of hurricanes that develop as part of climate change, which has been roundly affected by the Trump administration, which never, and I've watched now all all the convention, uh, not a mention of climate change. All they talk about are the environmental extremists who have ruined the logging industry. That That's the terminology. Um, and uh, one story, a huge story, Rex, you mentioned at the beginning we hadn't picked it up, was what's happening in Kenosha. Um, that's a that's a huge story about brutality and race relations and police operations in this country. And again, they're all connected with what was happening at the convention last night where Republicans are roundly defending police and hardly mentioning brutality against blacks and minorities in the country. So it, it, it's this is like the hardest thing for journalists to do to tell the big stories. How has Republican rule over the past four years affected all the stories that are happening right now? What about the lies that were told last night? And there were many. How do we get that across to people? And instead, it sounds like bias to them. It sounds like bias even if you listen to this discussion. We're saying Republicans lie and climate change is real. Those are seen now as biases, not scientific facts. Um, I'm also appalled at the story about the CDC pulling back on testing requirements saying, oh, yeah, Dr. Fauci agrees this is great. And he comes out and says, no, I was in surgery. I didn't know anything about this. We're being (laughs) lied to systematically on issues that affect us, our lives, and our property. That's the story we need to be telling. You're right that there's so much that it ties in together and how you actually tell it all is difficult. Now, when you talk about fact-checking, this does point to one of the real interesting 
issues that we often confront here, which is how we as journalists view our role versus what the ordinary citizen might say. You know, I can't tell you how many times through the years people have said to me, just give me the facts and let me decide. And I, we journalists these days say our job is to give people the truth, not just necessarily what happened. And that's what gives rise to fact-checking, real-time fact-checking. This has been a difficult issue for the networks covering the convention, since that's how most people interact with political conventions, because it is a fact that there is more lying going on. It is a, if you want the facts, the facts are there is more lying coming out of the White House than out of uh, the Democratic campaigns, um, that is, departures from facts. But how you do that kind of fact-checking without uh, alienating that 40% of your audience that is uh, Donald Trump all the time, all the way, is really a difficult decision. Um, because if you have no audience, you have no message to get across. You're, you're failing as a journalist as well. So these are, these are difficult choices. In fact, in fact, you take a look at, at uh, Fox. Now, this has been fascinating. Uh, when the Republican convention started on the first night, Fox was absent. It wasn't around that much. They were doing regular programming, and the president busted a gut and did the unthinkable. He complimented CNN and said, I thank you for covering the convention. He never said, unlike Fox, but everybody knew that's what he was talking about. The next night, guess who had been called to attention? Fox. <laughs> But I would argue that this gavel-to-gavel airing of the convention is a little bit like what we we talk about journalism not being stenographer. You, you don't just rewrite whatever everyone says at a meeting or exactly what the words were. We're more than stenographers, and the gavel-to-gavel, just letting the speeches run, that's stenography in a virtual or a digital or video form. And I almost think it's malpractice on our part to allow it to happen. That We all need to rethink it. You don't see that in newspapers. We're not running their speeches word for word, but that's sometimes what people want. But actually, nobody really wants to read through all those speeches. And a journalist's perspective on what's said and what's true and what's not, it's undeniable the fact that the fact-checkers have been a lot busier the week of the Republican convention than they were the week of the Democratic convention. And letting those lies air unchallenged is a real disservice to the American public. I have a friend, by the way, who feels that way about national public radio. They say, you know, they're so scared of their own shadows that they don't do the proper amount of analysis that even a CNN does when they say that was a mistruth and a lie. And I'm fascinated by that. It is harder on radio, though, as a format, isn't it, Alan? Because you only can listen to one thing at a time. On television, you can actually put up a chyron that says at the bottom of the screen, fact check, and you can give a few words there. Or you can drop what's actually going on into a lower right screen and let the rest of the show go. Whereas on radio, it's just one of the limitations of the medium. If you step in with a fact check, you're blotting out the entirety of what's going on. So I would disagree with that, Rex, for whatever it's worth. I mean, I truly believe that there's always an opportunity to put analysis into what is being said or heard. And you say, you know, I mean, well, if somebody's a liar, he's a liar. And if somebody is telling you a lie, then it would take you exactly three seconds to say, by the way, that factually what was just said is not true. You know, you and I and the crew have discussed this many times about government funding. One suspects, even if it's not so, 
that when NPR takes a, a fall this way and doesn't do the kind of analysis that, for example, we do on the roundtable in the morning, that basically they're watching out for the bottom line. Hmm. Uh-oh. Conferences at all. I've, I've said uh, many times I think the conventions are completely out of date. We pick presidents through primaries now. But if the parties are going to hold them, those are huge national events, and the media needs to cover them, and TV does them the best. And I, I don't always watch them through TV. I, I like the New York Times live coverage with the annotations on the side by political commentators and fact-checkers, but TV is a whole different element. You can point out a, a lie, but you can't point out the showmanship, the brass theatricality of having a first lady known for being cold and quiet, coming out dressed like Castro in a uniform, and talking wow. about how warm and, caring, warm and caring her husband is. You cannot do that except on television. And we do have a responsibility to show that to the people. It doesn't matter if, if everybody watches it or nobody does or only some does. The media is not uniform. You don't have to do it only one way. So I'm glad that they're on television. I love Rosemary so much. And, you know, there are certain things that she says that will stick in my mind till they put me under the ground. And one of them is that Melania Trump was dressed like Castro. He was. I think there was stuff running on the Internet comparing it. A uniform that he wore, you know, with a big belt and a straight ramrod posture. And she comes walking out, and no one knows anything about her except the raincoat that she wore that said, I don't care. And she talks about how warm and caring and loving her husband is, the man who put children in cages. Ah, you don't get that except <laughs> on television. Well, Castro never wore Manolo Blahniks, but never mind. I think, though, that the difficulty is how you can focus on the issues that are going to be longer lasting than the heat of the moment. And by the way, the conventions have been shaped by the parties now to conform to what the television networks want. So they've turned it into a two-hour-a-night event for the cable channels and one hour a night for the commercial networks, and that makes them television-friendly. So it is actually the media that has affected the public affairs as opposed to the media covering them. These have been shaped into media events, and I'm fully confident that if the major mode of people getting this information cut down to 30 minutes of coverage, the political parties would figure out a way to make it a 30-minute thing. It's just the way it is. You know, we need to take note, though, that here we are, again, talking about the political convention coverage because it gets our attention. But the issue of the systemic racism that has driven so much conversation that is so important in this time, you know, it's, it's hard for us to figure out how best to deal with it. And in the media, one of the elements that's difficult is how some of these stories get air and some don't. So Jacob Blake gets shot in Kenosha, Wisconsin, seven times, and we find out about it immediately. There's video. We know the details of it. But it took weeks and weeks before we knew about what happened in Louisville, the killing of Breonna Taylor, a 26-year-old EMT who was shot accidentally. Well, it was a, a raid on her apartment that shouldn't have been. This was not captured on tape, and so it didn't break into the national consciousness. And it's very hard for us in the media, I would have to say, to keep our focus on this very important issue when we're served up all this fresh stuff every night. I don't feel as though we're doing as good a job at being responsible stewards of the people's attention if we're not almost forcing people to pay attention to that big topic, right? Yes, that's really well put.
especially about the video. I mean, black people are rightly offended right now that it took video cameras to bring a problem they've long known about. They have suffered. And now suddenly others are paying attention to it. But it's more than just a video. That lasts, the shock of that lasts for a few days. But the systemic problem, the fact that it still goes on, that there isn't one that one case that's so horrific that it stops, but it still goes on is so systematic. We are not covering that. And, of course, Republicans and some others are trying to force the issue now into peace on the streets, that it isn't an issue of cops killing minorities. It's people protesting violently against that kind of murder. We have to get our hands on that story. Rex, is it appropriate for me to raise an issue that, you know, I've been watching with some concern? And that is the idea that we've long known about lobbying the legislature and lobbying the presidency and the K Street boys and women and what they do. Nevertheless, the press is now open to lobbying. And if somebody does a story which is unfavorable, they get landed on by a bunch of people who want the newspaper to change, be it an editorial that they're doing and say, that was a disgraceful editorial endorsing Richie Neal, for example, or one of those issues in which somebody, we on the roundtable forum, quite frequently hear from people who don't like what we said and want us to change it. And I'm getting more and more concerned about the level of that now, especially since some campaigns are so well-funded by outside billionaires that they have a cadre of people who make these decisions on how to go after newspapers and give them a hard time. Is anybody else noticing this, or is it just me? I don't think well, it's anything new. I mean, if you lobby, that's just kind of trying to bribe a reporter. And, you know, yes, we have some of that as... David Pecker has made clear to us, but I don't think that's widespread. But the legal action and billionaires ganging up to go to court against media like Gawker, for example, they they were forced out of business by a rich guy who could afford to take this to a very high level of legal action. Yeah, that's a threat against freedom of the press, independent press, absolutely. And I'd like to go back to what Judy said. It's always been here. But I'll be honest with you, Judy, I personally, as the head of a major radio station, have never seen it at the level I'm seeing it now. I just have never seen it this way. Oh, yeah, somebody writes you an occasional letter and say, I don't like what you said, or I don't like what Rosemary said. But that's different from the kind of organized cabals that I see occurring more and more now. Could it be, Alan, a a reflection of the just the vitriol of the times that we have just become so divided and that the rhetoric of our division has gotten to be so aggressive from the president to all of his supporters that what you're seeing is a really engaged populace that is accustomed to attacks on the media as being a great tactic. I think that it's the nature of the times, small t, that people are, as Judy says, yes, we've always had this. They've always come after us for editorials or columns and so on, but it is more vitriolic now, isn't it? Don't you think, Judy, isn't it more negative than it has been? Well, you know, I saw a lot of it during the Tea Party era. I mean, that that was pretty tough as well. And then anytime we would cover abortion rights issues, you would get almost an organized campaign. Whether or not it's sustained is another question, or whether it's more intense. During the run-up to the 2016 election, it was a tough time. In fact, every newspaper editor will tell you every election season is like that. It's just you're getting bombarded 
from the left, from the right, from the center. And you know you're doing a good job because nobody thinks you're doing a good job. So whether or not it's, I mean, I'm not sitting in the editor's chair right now, so I'm not a good one to ask if it's gotten worse in the last year or so. Certainly gotten more high level, led by Donald Trump. Did any of you catch recently Nicholas Sandman, the young man from Kentucky who was caught smirking at a Native American protester in Washington? And he sued the Washington Post for its portrayal of him and apparently reached some sort of settlement. So Trump brought him to the National Convention to talk about how evil the press is, how they're out to uh, hurt Trump especially, but anybody who is in favor of conservative values like, you know, anti-abortion. And this was a young man who just did it was a withering attack on the media, just absolutely amazing. And effective because it came out of this space. He's now all cleaned up. He was not smirking at all. Looked like this clean-cut young man. I think that's what's happening, and that's very, very organized to bring the whole uh, anti-abortion movement against the media as well as conservatives through the president. That's pretty powerful stuff. I'd just like to say one more thing about this since I brought up the subject. I taught a course, graduate course and an undergraduate course in lobbying and the development of lobbying at the state level in New York. And I watched as the lobbying process grew and grew and grew till it involved millions of dollars. What I'm positing here for you guys is that, well, Judy says it's happened before. I don't think it's ever happened at this level. And I think it's developing to the point now where uh, when you say something that it's, uh, that an organized group doesn't like, they form into groups, they fund it. The same people who fund the ads fund this thing. I think that's what's going on. And as we have noted on this program before, the threat, the long-term threat of this is the president's assault on the media undermining respect for the First Absolutely. Amendment, uh, respect for the whole role of the press. I think you're right, Alan, that this now has been engaged by very potent and well-funded sources so that you don't actually have just, you know, a reader writing in or calling right. you on the phone saying, gee, I didn't like that column, you idiot, which exactly. I get all the time. <laughs> in fact, that's right. But in fact, Rex, we know that when you get five letters in one day and nothing the day before and nothing the day after or maybe one the day after, you know somebody's putting all of this together. The combat for that, there is you know, a significant effort in, among journalists in thinking about this to try to figure out what to do. The notion of kind of repairing the trust bond with readers, listeners, viewers is going to be very difficult, but I think it has to be done community by community with a sort of, let's say, community-engaged journalism is one of the terms that's engaging people in the stories that matter to them, making sure that that is your focus. That is easier said than done especially in a newsroom experiencing layoffs and cutbacks and furloughs and so on. But I think that if people understand that journalism is done by their neighbors on their street corners and in their neighborhoods, that might begin to be a pushback against the organized antipathy toward journalism, the notion that we're all vultures. Maybe? Is that Pollyanna-ish? I think the pandemic and the schools is a great way for the media to reassert itself as a credible source for information because nobody knows anything and everybody wants to know everything. And in every small town, in every city, in every, you know, every community, the people want to know what's going to happen with the schools, what's going to happen with sports, you know, and nobody 
knows anything, and so it's a great opportunity for every radio station, newspaper, and television station to get out there and find it and lay the information out for everyone. And, in fact, it, that's true for anything dealing with this pandemic, although we are getting conflicting information from, you know, the CDC and the governor's office and, you know, your local doctor. I think the school systems and how they open is a great way for us to begin rebuilding the trust that we so desperately need in our communities. I've spent decades listening to one movement after another about how we have to engage with our readers and trust them and make them love us, and I think it's all baloney. I think the journalists (laughs) just need to go after good stories, use their own best judgment, and take the criticism. I I don't think there's any way to do it in a lasting way, even if we did this fantastic community service and told them everything they really needed and wanted to know about, say, floods, the flora or, or the pandemic, it would go away the first time we attacked a politician that they like. I don't think we should be concerned about engaging the public. We should be concerned about writing stories that are important. I agree with you. And let's face it, you know, Trump is a lying, lying, lying liar. We know that. So when you say he's a liar, you're not engaging in a trust building or trust destruction. You're just telling the truth. So I think uh, Rosemary's got a point. Well, the well, studies have proven that an engaged audience is far more likely to be a subscriber. And so we need to get to the one of the bottom lines here is what a good business model is. And that's one of the things we're trying to do is get people to come in back and back and make this particular entity uh, something that they will pay for. And, and then, again, more engaged audiences are far more likely to be subscribers. Will they pay for it if they're, for example, in Arizona in a red, red, red Republican district? And we know people want to go and hear what they want to hear. So Republicans watch Republicans, Democrats watch Democrats, that kind of thing. So is what you're saying here that the bottom line has to be subscribed to? Judy, that's my problem. The bottom line may be we have a bunch of Trump voters and we have to give them what they want as opposed to what they should be getting. All I've ever heard is you you give them stories they like, like cute dog stories or stories they agree with. Trump is a great guy. No, no, no. That's not what Judy's saying at all. That's not what I'm saying. The point is that there are stories that are important to people that you need to tell. You need to engage readers, and if you are unengaged, they're not going to pay any attention to you. Besides, Alan's talking about commentary. We're talking about news coverage. Here's what's going to engage readers. Think about what's going on in the hurricane zone. Think about people who are affected by wildfires, people who are affected by the pandemic in the schools. It's your local journalists who are telling those stories, and that's where you need to rebuild your trust, and that's just good journalism. That's not pandering. That's storytelling that is important and vital to people's lives. And that's where we when need and to where be. did the media ever stop doing those kinds of stories? When we focus instead entirely on commentary and being out of touch with people's real lives. The real lives of especially of our, think of the black citizens of our community, the real lives of those people we have ignored for an awful long time, as we were saying earlier on this show, or not paid the right uh, level of attention to it. Engaging oh, in that way is important. Oh. I don't get this commentary attack of yours here, Rex. The fact of the, <laughs> the, fact of the, the matter is you write an excellent column. See what I did there? You write an excellent column of opinion every Saturday in the Albany Times Union. And I read it assiduously. And I have to say that sometimes the columns tell a lot more truth than the news stories do. Well, you know, we're just out of time. What a wonderful no. way to end the show. <laughs> to end the show there, but we are genuinely out of time. A great conversation that will continue further if our listeners come back to us next week. 
This is the Media Project. You've had Alan Shartok, Rosemary Armeo, Judy Patrick, and I'm Rex Smith in the Times Union. Thanks to our producer, David Castina, and to you for joining us this week on the Media Project. Some of the press.